So, uh, hey, 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 I'm Gilda. And I'm Steph. And you are listening to Saturday Night High, the podcast where we get stoned and talk about Saturday Night Live. Yes, and tonight we are going to be talking about um, Live from New York, part five, meaning we have already done parts one through four. So you might want to give those a listen. If not, that's cool. This is going to be dealing with the years 1990 to 1995. If you haven't listened to parts one through four, there will be spoilers in this and you probably won't understand a lot of it. So yeah, Um, we can't explain it five times. It's too much. And I would also like to take a moment to say listener discretion is advised as we talk about adult themes in this show and also our drug use. I'm pretty baked on some Black Mamba AeroPro right now. So nice. I just smoked a lot of whatever my dealer gave me, weed. (laughs) Well, yeah, thank you for clarifying that it was weed, that you're not, you know, lighting up a crack pipe in your bathroom. Oh my God. (laughs) What my dealer gave me, weed. (laughs) Yes. I'm not like the strain name is what my dealer gave me. Not like legitimately a strain name, but the one that I'm using. Yes. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. When I'm done with this, I'm going to my dispensary stuff. Don't worry. (laughs) Good. So I'd like to start this with saying I have a problem with people who call 90s Saturday Night Live juvenile. Because while the humor did take a turn towards your Adam Sandler, Chris Farley, let's say stereotypical boy humor, if you will, while it did take a turn towards that, it was the comedy that was popular and it was what worked at the time. And... The show has always been called juvenile in every, in every iteration. And everyone has a least favorite era of Saturday Night Live. And I find that, you know, I've had a least favorite era in the time that I've been watching. And it's just, if it's not your type of humor, you just move on. Just keep watching, maybe pay a little less attention. But if you can appreciate the generational humor change, it's like, SNL changes with its writers and the writers are always pretty young. So every generation of writers is going to have a different take of what is funny. And just remember that SNL, it's a 46 year old show that has lived and died and risen again. It has to keep changing. It has to go through these different phases. Or the fans at this point in the early 90s were the original Saturday Night Live fans, and they're now introducing their children to the show. And of course, they're going to hate the new humor. It's not what they grew up with, but the show has never been the same as it was in those first five years. Even in the first few years after the first year, it changed. So it really irks me when people um, complain that, oh, SNL isn't funny anymore. It's a cycle. Just because it's not the cycle or it's not at the point of the cycle you like, be quiet. Some of us are happy. Move on. Anyway, rant over. (laughs) Yeah, it's definitely a cycle. Um, And I mean, this is also a time when like the things that were on TV were like, you know, like friends, like, I don't know, comedy was just a little bit different. (laughs) Yeah, it was, it wasn't really 
a time, and I mean, obviously, and I don't want to say it wasn't a time for Saturday Night Live, but there was much more of a focus on the sitcom and Frasier yeah. and Friends and Seinfeld. And they were the little half hour comedy bites that you got on Thursday night or whatever night the comedies aired on on NBC. It was, it wasn't, the focus really wasn't Saturday Night Live. It was more of, it was more in prime time. So yeah, I, I agree that it's not really when I think of comedy in the 90s, I really don't think Saturday Night Live. I think the sitcoms. And Saturday Night Live is there in the back of my mind, but it's not the first thing yeah. that comes to mind. Yeah, but they did have some interesting things happen during this yeah. time period. <laughs> yeah, this was probably the most drama-filled years of Saturday Night Live. It seemed it. It was like every time I turned a page, there was... something else someone was angry at someone else who was thought i mean chris farley was one of the most notable cast members of this time period yes and he was i think what led to his success was his reverence of the early years of the show and that he didn't come in assuming he would be famous he uh chris farley he was reverent of the early cast and the early years of saturday night live and the fact that he learned from the original cast members in the early years it made him successful rather than being a comedian coming onto Saturday Night Live and assuming that, well, I'm on Saturday Night Live, so now I'm just going to be famous. Right, yeah. He was reverent of the original cast, but like particularly John Belushi, it seemed like. Yeah, John Belushi was his idol. He was a total fanboy for him. Down to, I mean, really down to, they said, even the worst habits. It was excess. Mm. Everything was excess, whether it was food, alcohol, drugs. And it's sad because he was fucking hilarious. Mm. Fun fact. Did you know that Chris Farley had voiced like 98% of Shrek? And that was when he died. And then he, they completely scrapped all of his vocals and all of his things. And they rewrote the entire, Mike Myers came in and redid the entire thing. Whoa, I do love Shrek. Like, I know. The voice like, acting in that. It's, that's honestly the first animated, if you will, CG, whatever it is. Um, it's, it was the first animated movie where I was like, okay, the voices in this are incredible. Like, I knew who they were in real life. Like, I knew Donkey was Eddie Murphy. Like, they were recognizable voices. But it was the first time that I was like, oh, that's that's a thing it wasn't just a movie it was voice acting yeah i think that's something that universal did much more than disney but that's not what this podcast is about although i could talk for another 45 minutes about it right i literally i was like why are we talking about what 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 do you mean you don't want to go on about it and then i remember that we're doing a saturday night live podcast not talking about voice acting and disney and pixar or where all of them yeah i think the david spade quote on page 362 is interesting he says i remember there was a period when the cast members were bigger stars than the hosts that was scary i was thinking mike myers is a bigger star than the host and dana carvey is a bigger star than the host it was weird and when i got there they were saying dennis miller and dana and phil were horrible that was a horrible cast and then in a couple of years when i moved up into the cast they said we were horrible why can't we be like dana and phil and those guys back when it was good and then when we left they were telling will ferrell that when spade farley and sandler were there that's when it was funny so there we go it's proof from david spade's mouth that the show is cyclical and everyone gets called shitty in their first year or two on the show of course they're not going to be good at Saturday Night Live. You can't, you're jumping onto a moving train. <laughs> like, of course it takes a while to get your feet. 
I, someone that was like that for me, Cecily Strong. I could not stand her at the beginning. I couldn't. And now she's incredible. I love her. She just, she, it was just, everyone's awkward in their first few years of Saturday Night Live. Yeah, it took her some time, but now, like, whenever I see her, I know it's going to be good. Exactly. It just took her a while to find her brand. Yes. I have something to bring up, but I, I want you to go next. Do you see this? <laughs> I was just watching the dog. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. This dog is doing acrobatics behind me. He's, like, climbing on the back of the couch, oh. trying to get higher. Oh, buddy. Oh, oh, no, that's my water bottle. Hey. I'm the podcaster um. now. Hello, Bork Bork. <laughs> I do think Chris Farley is funny. Oh, <laughs> Did you just yawn? You just yawned so on the podcast. Oh, I hope it caught that. <laughs> Am I going to have to lock you out of the room? I mean, honestly, like, the the biggest thing I was I want to talk about was the incident with, fuck, I didn't look up how to pronounce her name. Sinead O'Connor? Sinead O'Connor. With... Sh- <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the incident with Sinead O'Connor... Nope. Um, <laughs> and if you're wondering how I could pronounce that, it's because I went to Ireland last summer. No, actually, it's because Gilda just told me. But anyways. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, no. Uh, something that really, the Sinead O'Connor incident. Had you ever heard of this before reading about this or no? But I had seen so much about it. Okay. Um, just from being on the internet, you know. Well, <laughs> right. Um, but yeah, so this was honestly one of the most controversial moments in Saturday Night Live's history. Sinead O'Connor was the musical guest and she wanted, so she had her two songs planned out, but she was going to perform. And her manager, and I know managers can be sketchy, but this was the most goddamn obvious question that has ever been asked. And I don't know how they can say, oh, we didn't know something was going to happen. Because the manager comes in to the booth and says to John Zonars, who was the music coordinator, they came in and the manager cornered me and asked me a very poignant question, which was, when something goes wrong on the air, do you use, do you use the dress rehearsal performance? So, okay, what, what's going to go wrong on air that you're asking me about this hours in advance? What's going to go wrong that you know about? <laughs> so, yeah. And so he answers, it's been known to happen for the West Coast, but for the live show, obviously it's live. It goes out live, I think, as far as the central time zone. So then he says, I want to change the second song to War by Bob Marley, and she'll do it a cappella. And there's a very special thing she wants to do, since War is essentially about child abuse. And at the end of the song, she wants to hold up a photo of a child and make a statement about child abuse, okay? So I went as far as to get her the photo of a child, talk to Lauren about it, talk to the director, basically tell him he's got to zoom in on her and get a close-up of her with this photo. And when we did the dress rehearsal, she sang War and held up the photo of the child. And I think she said, this is what we have to protect or something. The house was captivated. She's giving this exhilarating performance by herself. And then during the actual show, I remember I was in the studio watching her and I started feeling nervous. And I thought that my nerves were due to the fact that since she was doing it a cappella, she was taking longer than she had at dress. And I was afraid that she was taking too much time. 
So I walked into the control room and just as I did, it happened. And I looked up at everybody and they were all in shock and they refused to turn on the applause sign after she ripped up the picture of the Pope. And I think that was the classiest move in the whole history of television, not cueing applause. I mean, he's not wrong. Cueing the applause sign after someone has ripped up a picture of the Pope. Yeah, that's probably not a good move if you want to have a job the next morning. Yeah, that would have been really tough. Yeah. <laughs> so Sinead O'Connor ripped up a picture of the Pope on live television. And it would be, I don't even know. The internet didn't even exist then, but this was all anyone could talk about. It literally ruined her fucking career. It, it ruined her career. And the thing is, is I remember... I don't remember when it happened, but I remember being a child, let's say in the second to third grade area, and hearing my parents joke about the Sinead O'Connor incident, and oh, well, you know, you should be fine as long as you don't rip up a picture of the Pope. And it's like, this was a cultural reference through the 90s. So, yeah, I mean, people talked about this for fucking years. They still do, which is how I knew about it. I kind of half expected the book to be your first your first brush with it, simply based on our conversation about Jack White the other night. But, you know, I, I, I wasn't really sure what I was coming into tonight into part five. So, yeah, uh, Warren Littlefield on page 368 says, All in all, even when it was, oh my God, Sinead O'Connor tore up a picture of the Pope. As I said to Lauren, Lauren, when we go too long without controversy, something's wrong. This show is supposed to rock. It's supposed to be the adolescent that is not obedient to authority. And if we lose that, then we don't have the show. And he's right. Saturday Night Live is best when it's thriving on controversy. And I mean, fuck, the Bill Burr. <laughs> Bill Bar- I almost said Bill Barr. It's really difficult when... The AG is named Bill Barr. There's a comedian named Bill Burr. No, William Barr was not on Saturday Night Live. Bill Burr, even with his monologue, people were, people, I, I was still talking about it yesterday with a friend of mine at work. Like, it's controversial. SNL thrives on controversy. And Lauren's position on the Sinead O'Connor incident. He says on 368 as well, I think it was the bravest possible thing she could do. She'd been a nun. To her, the church symbolized everything that was bad about growing up in Ireland, the way she grew up in Ireland. And so she was making a strong political statement. And I love that how he, he says it was brave. He doesn't condemn it. He doesn't support it, but it was brave. She was making a statement on one of the biggest platforms yeah. she could have. And was she wrong? Probably not. It Read the room. <laughs> you, mm. But again, people still say Sinead O'Connor, and what's the first thing they think of? You know? I mean, yeah, she wanted to make a big statement, and she did. Like, Oh, yeah, she did. You know, and still hearing that to this day, I'm like, oh my god, that's incredible that she did that. Um, and I'd, I like that Lauren didn't, like, condemn it. Like, yeah. he knows what he's got. <laughs> he does. And at on page 369, there was a quote I liked about uh, this, uh, about the live aspect and just the exciting aspect. Oh, uh, I think I also marked that quote, but I yeah. don't have a quote. No, it's okay. <laughs> Lenny Pickett, the band leader for Saturday Night Live, uh, 
says uh, says on page 369, things like Sinead O'Connor, things like the Sinead O'Connor incident have happened from time to time. Somebody's done something outrageous. And I hate to say this, but it's kind of more delightful than anything else to see something that amazing on live television. It's what everybody secretly is waiting for. That's why it's still an interesting show after all of these years, because people know anything might go down. And when it does, it's exhilarating as much as anything else. I mean, it's not like you want to see these sort of things, but at the same time, when they do happen, you're aware that you are just participating in an event. And to know that there's always a potential for that to occur is sort of wonderful. That I that sums up the magic of Saturday Night Live so perfectly, because how many shows can do what they do week in and week out for as long as they have and still have as many people tuning in and talking about them? And it's because of the live aspect. It's the magic of spontaneity. You never know what might happen. And no matter what, it's still what you're going to be talking about on Monday morning. Yeah, no. And it's amazing. Like, it's just always current somehow. Yeah. It's live. <laughs> but it's live and they do. It's They do adapt and they do rotate cast members in and out. And I mean, I can't think of a show that I've watched consistently like this. I mean... There, there's nothing not even not even law and order man i i haven't watched law and order in like two years that, that makes me sad oh. Oh. <laughs> please it just means i'm gonna have an epic binge session at some point well i will say i really don't like the character of pat i don't know if you're familiar with pat no so pat is a character that is gender neutral and you don't know if Pat is a man or a woman, and that's the joke. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I remember they were, like, describing this, and I was like, hmm. Yeah. <laughs> no, not really a fan of that. It's There was a movie. It's just, it's transphobic. It's someone's identity isn't funny. Yeah, you, no, it's uh, fucked up. Oh, you want to get into some drama? Yes, always. Okay. So, 373 to 374, we have... John Lovitz being an asshole to Dana Carvey. And I'm sure I'm not speaking out of school here when everyone knows there was a problem with Mike and Dana on the set. I'm Oh, so this is talking. Sorry, I should probably introduce the fucking quote I'm talking about instead of just cold reading something and letting y'all figure it out. <laughs> Fill in the, this is Mad Libs SNL. You, you create the story. Um, okay, so yeah, so we're getting into some drama here. And... <sighs> They were filming a Wayne's World movie. And I say they, and I mean Mike Myers and Dana Carvey and Lauren was a producer. And Terry Turner, who is a writer for Wayne's World, says, Terry Turner, who is a writer, says, I'm sure I'm not speaking out of school here when everyone knows there was a problem with Mike and Dana on the set. I'm pretty sure everyone knows that. So there was some hostility and then some friendly hostility and then people would band together and it spilled over into the show. I remember once Lovett said to Dana, he was just absolutely killing in a sketch. But when Dana came off the stage, Lovett said to him, Dana, Dana, you're coming off gay just to undermine every bit of confidence he had, just like, you know, a jerk. So he's an ass. And again, this is John Lovett's not be confused with John Lovett of pod save slash love it or leave it slash crooked media Obama speechwriter. We love him. We love Ronan. This is not, please don't at the wrong person here. This is John Lovett's L-O-V-I-T-Z. 
he was a bit of a dick (laughs) bit of a dick yeah and uh, i just why 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 do you Mm. yeah (laughs) anyway i will never understand can we all just smoke weed and be happy, bro? I, I, I don't... This isn't that difficult, guys. We got it down. <laughs> David Spade has a quote on page 374. And I think it kind of illustrates some of the complexities of being a cast member on the show and kind of having a shifting role going from being a literal unknown to being a star. And Mm -hmm. David Spade says, I think the breakthrough for me was when I did that sketch as a receptionist saying, and you are, and that kind of thing, which kind of worked. It was a little dry attitude and it caught on fast, which was nice. It didn't solidify me there, but the following year I did my first Hollywood minute and that's the one Lauren liked. I was just basically sitting at the table in the writer's room, bored, reading People magazine, commenting out loud about what was going on in the world and just making fun of everyone. Someone was like, why don't you just do that on the show? That's what you're good at. And that was Lauren's opinion, too. He said, you finally found a unique voice. Just do that. And so two weeks later, he said, why don't you write up another Hollywood Minute? And he had never asked me to do something like that, which basically meant it would probably be on the show. And I thought, great. So I was such a whore doing that. I probably wouldn't have done it as much as I did, but it was (laughs) actually getting in the back of my head that I might get fired at that point because it was three years in and I hadn't made much of a dent. And I did it every couple weeks. It was crazy. I didn't care who I took out. I was just an unknown guy making fun of million-dollar celebrities for no reason just to take their legs out a year or two later it was much less interesting because i had turned into one of them and i love that yeah it's i love it because i think david spade is fucking hilarious but it's it's like it's not as much fun when you know the people and it's it's mean at that point because now you're not the little guy you are their equal and yeah so right yeah, and Fred Wolf would actually beg David Spade not to hit the people that couldn't take a hit, saying that, you know, who knows where you'll be one day when you're turning on the TV and you'll see someone saying as nasty about you is what you're saying about them. It's just going to send you into a free fall. And, you know, he listened to me somewhat. If you hit Madonna, she'll take it. If you hit Michael Jackson, he'll take it. You can't hit really easy targets. Mm. So, that's and that good. that's also, I mean, you can't, you have to have, you have to go after people that, aren't going to give a shit and they're too big to have one comment on Saturday Night Live takedown. It's not going to derail their brain for, you know. Mm-hmm. Anyway. I mean, I guess I'm ready to talk about Adam Sandler. Same. The next part of my <laughs> notes is in bright green, the arrival of A.Sam. Ha! <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> yep. Um, yeah, I'm, well, okay. First of all, Adam Sandler, definitely what this time period needed. Um, even though it is, again, Adam Sandler and like the stuff that he makes now is not really my cup of tea. <laughs> no, no. Adam, mid 90s, <laughs> late 90s, Adam Sandler, that Adam Sandler I like. His Billy Madison's yeah. Happy Gilmore's, I, I can appreciate those. Um, Adam Sandler now just kind of flies his buddies to tropical locations and picks movies that he can film there like dead ass it's it's, he he just gets paid vacation with 
he gets paid vacations with Kevin James and David Spade and whoever the fuck he chooses to be in his latest movie about dads going wild in Hawaii. No, no, that's a vacation, with Adam. Jennifer Aniston or some. Right? People. Yeah. <laughs> oh, but oh my God. Yeah. I wrote notes from, oh my God. His, in Adam Sandler's first skit, like he was nervous and he was doing the skit with, um, Tom Hanks. And so he told Tom Hanks that he was a little bit nervous for it. And Tom Hanks said it's gonna be all right. And I love that. <laughs> it was it was exactly what you want to think Tom Hanks would do in that situation, like comforting. Right? And yeah, it, on 377, Adam Sandler says, I actually remember my first skit. It was Tom Hanks and Dana Carvey, and I just came on. I just had two lines. I remember that countdown. I remember telling Hanks right before, whew, I'm nervous. And he goes, hey, it's going to be all right. I said, man, I feel like I'm going to faint or something. He goes, well, don't do that. Like, <laughs> like, it's such a Tom Hanks thing. It's so supportive, but also like, well, don't. <laughs> <laughs> He's so great. Oh, God. <laughs> Yeah, I, I thought his, um, the fact that Bob Odenkirk, I mean, Bob Odenkirk is, we all know, um, he is Saul or Jimmy McGill in Better Call Saul slash Breaking Bad. And he got his start writing on Saturday Night Live. And he seems to really like Adam Sandler. He said that Adam Sandler took everyone by surprise and he'd been there for a few years. And I believe in good sketch comedy and great sketches. And I thought Sandler brought a really great breath of fresh air to the show and relaxed the show when it was getting uptight and formulaic. And so, I mean, again, that's someone who he says, I believe in really solid sketches saying, you know what? Sketches don't need to be solid. They don't need to be serious. They can be light and fun and I thought I thought that was great yeah that is great sometimes it's what you need something that I didn't really uh feel the need to read about was uh Adam Sandler's sex life Mm. Jack Handy on 376 to 377 says I was in a fraternity in college and I thought I had heard some pretty graphic sex stories but Sandler would just go into detail about some of his sexual adventures to the point where he would just be crying and laughing it was so embarrassing just the detail he would go into it's like that's not something I wanted to picture although his wife is a straight up babe every time I see Adam Sandler's wife I'm like oh right I forgot he was married to a straight up hottie you need, yeah, you need Hang to on. look her up. I yeah, yeah. I, I, I saw that subtle grab for the phone off. You're just, your hand goes off screen. You're like, let's let me grab this. I'm, I'm expecting like a Colin Joe, Scarlett Johansson level difference. Um, oh, she is pretty. She Holy is shit. beautiful. And um, she was in, do you remember? Do you remember? <laughs> Uh, the Saturday Night Live at Home videos, obviously. Yeah. Um, the one that one of the ones Pete Davidson did with Adam Sandler. Adam Sandler's wife and daughters were in it, and oh. yeah, and that that was I was just like, oh right, fuck yeah, she's a babe. It's just not, and, and not not that Adam Sandler's a bad looking guy. It's just not what you'd expect. <laughs> Especially the way he, he acts if he's talking about his sex life like that. Like, oh, yeah, boy, right. It's like <laughs> everything you think about Adam Sandler when you think Adam Sandler, you don't think, oh man, has gorgeous wife. But I've heard many stories about him being a wonderful person. So, you know, I'm very happy for him. I'm sure he is. 
<laughs> he gets to go uh, on vacation with Kevin Hart and whoever the fuck else <laughs> to fucking Marblehead, Massachusetts or some shit. Like, <laughs> yeah. I thought Chris Rock being brutally honest as to um, why he was hired. Or I got hired because In Living Color was on. SNL hadn't had a black guy in eight years or something. In Living Color was so hot, so they had to hire a black guy. Trust me, there were no black guys for eight years. So I can hear him saying that. (laughs) But it's, I mean, SNL has had an SNL so white problem. As of recently, I mean, it's only been within the past maybe four to five years that they have really started adding cast members of from different cultures and that have different experiences than, you know, your white bread, white casts. There are other, there are people out there that are also funny that are not white. Like, hmm. Um, Yeah, you could tell that they're like, actually like consciously trying to have a more diverse cast right now. Yes. Um, And on 379 and 381, Chris Rock goes into it's an absolute, it's the best training show. It's the best training grounds for comedy. And the best thing about the show it was that when you did write a piece, you were responsible for it. You were in charge of the casting. You were in charge of the costumes. You produced the piece. I wouldn't know what the fuck I was doing if I hadn't been on Saturday Night Live. It's the absolute best training you can have in show business. And then says again on 381 the things i learned there there'd be no chris rock show i never would have had the success i had with that if i hadn't been on snl learning how to run a show i didn't go to college so this was all school for me everyone was a professor professor al franken professor phil hartman and he has a point in that the show can be if you put in the work and don't get an ego and flame out it's a great training ground and I think it's a part of why it pretty regularly produces solid comedic talent because you, you you're getting trained on how to write a piece, how to cast a piece. How it's yeah, it's comedy yeah. boot camp. I thought it was cute when he called them professors. Yeah. Um, fuck, and SNL scarred Eddie Murphy, man. Yeah. Uh, and I feel bad for him on 380, Chris Rock. Uh, says he won't talk to any he Eddie Murphy won't talk to anybody about the show he's done with it he's not bitter about it he loves it he totally credits the show I don't want to speak for him but I think he does get pissed when they make fun of him only because the show would have gotten canceled if he hadn't been there there would be no show so he deserves a pass on that aspect the show would have absolutely gotten canceled there were really no stars have you watched the reruns on Comedy Central when they do the intros and Don Pardo is saying the names the yell on Eddie Murphy is so much greater than for anybody else else in the cast goes on to lauren michaels goes on to say as the 15th anniversary approached i met with eddie he couldn't have been nicer was very gracious but there was a thing that billy crystal had said about him in a playboy interview that eddie didn't like so what i was told was that eddie would come on the anniversary show but he wouldn't want billy crystal to be on and i had already invited billy crystal i think eddie felt billy was wrong for telling tales out of school and it's like i i get it but that's some well, I don't want to say it's petty, but it's kind of petty. It's yeah, like... it's 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 like when you look at like the impact that it had, it's like, oh, that's like, really? Like, <laughs> right, right. It's like and, and as Chris Rock says, that it's not that he's bitter about Saturday Night Live. He loved being on it. It's not some of the people that came away from the show and didn't have success and became a bit bitter. Yeah, it's it's 
odd and I understand, but he's since returned to the show. He was on the 40th anniversary he hosted last December and holy shit, it was amazing. I didn't expect to enjoy it nearly as much as I did. And yeah. And now that I think back, it's like, oh, wow. That I was one of the last few shows. And I'm like, bitch, I'm going to slap you through the screen. I was so busy last December. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yes. Okay. <laughs> I do you remember are. seeing it though. And I, I remember being like, oh shit, this is one that I do want to watch. But I, yeah. I remember seeing it and just letting it go. I'm pretty, <laughs> sure, I'm pretty sure it was the Christmas episode. It was like, so it was a big show anyway. And then it was Eddie fucking Murphy on top of the Christmas show. And it was just like every SNL fan's wet dream. Like, yeah, I, I, I can't even. So just a warning for listeners. There is uh, some problematic stuff coming up here. I mean, what are you trying to say? Just that we're about to talk about. Um... We're about to talk about some really touchy, icky stuff. Um, so yeah, Janine Garofalo, she was a comedian who, she's very liberal, very outspoken, and she says she can still remember one sketch in particular where aliens had taken some of the male cast members on the ship and had anally probed them and written bitch in lipstick on their chests. Is that funny? It was a Maalox moment every five minutes. And it's not funny. It's... Yeah, no. What's, what's the point of that? I she wanted to quit after her first it's week just, it's bad for the humor yeah and she wanted to quit after the first week she phoned her agent and said this is not a good fit there is something wrong here there's a tangible almost palpable perhaps the word is visceral feeling of a bad of bad karma when you walk into the writer's room there's something rotten in denmark and any job um that you have a feeling like that about ugh, get out like mm-mm, not worth it i've had that feeling before and she Mm. yeah yeah i had that i had that feeling for about a year and a half and much like janine garofalo my drinking also got out of hand um oh god yeah yeah you know what job i'm talking about um Mm -hmm. uh yeah so then and i think something that's really interesting about this perspective is you hear both sides of it you hear janine garofalo and you hear some of the women's you hear the side of some of the women. And then you also hear the opposing viewpoint, like Fred Wolf saying, Janine Garofalo was awful on the show. She had it completely and totally wrong. She's very, very insecure. Okay, fuck you. That's not, like, you don't get to dictate dictate her experience. And, And I think it's really interesting to hear it from this perspective from Janine Garofalo as well, because while yes, there had been women on the show, so far most of the book has been male dominant. The women that are quoted in the book really aren't speaking about their ill, about their bad times on SNL. It's alluded to, but it's not, no stories are mentioned outright. And that's something that this section gets into, the stories. And it's like, if it was this bad in the mid nineties, how bad was it in the eighties? How bad was it in the seventies? Mm. yeah and i know that the entertainment business isn't super populated by women and representation is a clear fucking problem um but you hear the stories about how great it was and how much fun it was and then you read a quote like that from janine garofalo and it's like a record scratch moment because this is just one story and how many others 
are there. And it's telling how differently the men see the show. And some of the men on the show, they clearly have such a different experience. And I'm not saying some of their complaints don't sound valid, but when you have Fred Wolf saying, at that point, Janine Garofalo was a darling of the press because she was an articulate female and going on about how it's a men's club at Saturday Night Lifeless. And that's just bullshit. It's an absolute total bullshit label. It just so happens that men are wildly more successful than women at Saturday Night Live, but not by design. It's just genetic makeup, in my opinion. Straight up, fuck you. And the misogynistic horse you rode in on, you miserable prick. Like, mm-hmm. men are better at Saturday Night Live? Fuck you. That is so clearly not true. Like, I'm not saying that women are better, but you can't say that men are better at Saturday yeah. Night Live when women haven't been given opportunities over the decade. Yeah. So. You also just can't say it's genetic makeup. Like, I'm sorry, what? Right. Who are you? <laughs> yeah. And another person that's in this section is Chris Elliott. And I personally think he's a little bit of a bitter bitch. Um, he was the second generation cast member in his family. And I think he just didn't have a, I mean, he talks about how he had an okay time, but he was known before Saturday Night Live. He was on David Letterman. Even on David Letterman, I wasn't, he wasn't my style. But his daughter, Abby, was on seasons 34 to 38. She was the third generation of that family to be on Saturday Night Live. And she was on the show the longest. And she wasn't my favorite, but she had some good stuff. Uh, Her, she... I don't think she did Lana Del Rey. She did a lot of musical impressions that I thought were really, really good. And she's by far my favorite Elliot. So yeah, so Chris Elliot was also someone from the 90 to 95 time period that didn't really have that great of a time on the show. And I also want to say that Jean Garofalo does admit that there were some times that she, on Saturday Night Live, that she enjoyed herself. Um, and she says, there were nights where I had a really nice time. Actually, I had a great night the night Alec Baldwin hosted. My family was in the audience. It was super fun. It was the Christmas show. The party afterwards was incredibly enjoyable. The Beastie Boys or the musical guests, it was just like I had fantasized it would be. It was very exciting and my family was really pleased. So like not everything was bad about their experiences and they admit that, but it, I do understand why it's really hard to differentiate the two when you're so miserable all the time. Yes, you had some fun times at your job, but when it's 80% bad and 20% good, doesn't make up for it. Um, and then- Yeah, no, I think that's kind of a lot of different situations though. <laughs> yeah. Um, and Janine Garofalo says that she thinks when she quits SNL, it was the first time Lauren ever respected her. And the nicest he was was after I quit. And I think he had a bizarre respect. And then also in some way he hated me, you know, he despised me and was pleased that I had quit, pleased that I was leaving and pleased that I had shown, shown some kind of backbone. And so that ended not amicably. Um, there were more problematic things. I think I just stopped highlighting at a certain point because I was like, I don't even fucking want to talk about all this shit. Like, it was just so disgusting. There's a lot. I wrote down the 386 to 391 was really problematic. And yeah, I only, I, I stopped highlighting on page 387. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. So at this time, Lauren started making moves. And... In 1993, Don Olmeyer came to NBC and there was the issue of replacing Letterman. 
And Robert Wright says, who jumped to CBS? That's a really nice way of saying Jay Leno stabbed his friend Dave in the back to replace Johnny Carson. But jumped to CBS, sure, we'll go with it. Um, Yeah, so they had to replace David Letterman, and Lauren cleverly positioned himself and got himself the commission to do that. And he he knew Conan was the one he wanted. And, you know, it only took 28 years, but Lauren was now producing two out of... NBC's three late night staples. So yeah, so Lauren replaced David Letterman with Conan O'Brien, which I actually really like. And Conan O'Brien then turned into the David Letterman of our generation because he was then, when he got the Tonight Show, he was then stabbed in the back by Jay Leno who wanted the Tonight Show back. And Conan had to be off TV for a year, which was like a death sentence in TV time. And he did a comedy tour. He did a stand-up tour at that point where he just went around the nation and it was called the Legally Not Allowed to be Funny on TV tour. <laughs> like that, yeah. Oh he played. He did it at Bonnaroo. Like fucking Whoa. music festival. So, yeah. So, uh, yep. So, but Conan is kind of the disgruntled, I had my show stolen, but I'm really an old sweetie at heart. That's David Letterman. <laughs> Andy Breckman, so yeah, so they replace David Letterman with Conan O'Brien. So Andy Breckman says, for a while in the late 80s and into the 90s, Lauren would bring back the golden oldies, writers from the first five years, for a week or two when their schedule permitted. And it was actually great to be a guest writer. Suzanne Miller I met that way. Ann Bates I met. I don't recall if she was officially on as a writer, but these people would come back for a season or for a show or two. It was actually a great system because everyone came in knowing the show and knowing what Tuesday nights were like and what was expected after read through and how Thursday nights worked and how rewriting worked. And I actually kind of like the idea of bringing back and rotating writers in and out because it brings back a style that people might like, but it also does keep things fresh and it teaches the newbies how shit works. Yeah, it's great. I love it. Yeah, I I wouldn't mind if they brought that back. John Mulaney just subbing in for a season or so. <laughs> I feel Fuck like he's yeah. too recent to bring him back. Like I feel like he like just I, he left in like 2008. He's just been on the show three times in the past three years. Um, so yeah, at this point in time, Chris Rock leaves and uh, he left to go to In Living Color. And it was more of a, of a machine than Saturday Night Live. SNL, they have little rules. Like, no one was going to write a Wayne's World but Mike Myers. Your character was your character. Lauren might say, I need you to write a Wayne's World, or it would be very nice if we had a church lady this week, or whatever it was, but it was still up to you. At In Living Color, if you had a hit character, they didn't care who wrote it. Once it was a hit character, it was the show's. It was weird that way, not a better way to tell you the truth. And I also think he has a point because if you write your own characters, you know the nuances and how they think and what they think. And it's harder to write a character that you might not connect with or understand. And then it just leads to tone and consistency errors. And that's not what you want in a sketch show with recurring characters. Yeah. And like as a writer, once somebody else takes your character, like that's that's it. It's not your character anymore. It's a right. different fucking character. Like-, <laughs> like, can you imagine anybody but John Mulaney and Bill Hader writing Stefan? No. Oh my god, I was just thinking that. <laughs> We're in each other's brains. We're in each other's brains. This happens yes. way too often. We're in each other's brains. Um, okay. Um, and so yeah, the, Lauren's show format in terms of both the 
have both the levels of comedians and the timing of the show. So Lauren sets it up so bri- Fred Wolf on page 396 sets it up so brilliantly in that it's like this enormous pool of talent and they all have egos and they have to have egos to survive the situation of Saturday Night Live. And it's almost set up like sports teams, a university and a varsity. I always thought that was a great way to do it, that you have your varsity, your first string guys out there in these sketches in the first half hour, the first half of the show. And then you have second stringers that are so hungry to get on the air, they will do anything they can to make that happen. So they write sketches for themselves and they write sketches for the star that they can be included in. And it keeps everyone working as hard as they can because it's you're constantly writing, whether it's for yourself or with someone else. And then you have the sketch format where you have sketches for... 20 minutes, a musical performance, and then Weekend Update is dead center in the show. Whenever I'm tired, even if I am exhausted, I will stay up through Weekend Update because you you have to. It's the punchy one-liners. It's you see the first musical performance, you see Weekend Update, and then if you have to crash, you go to bed and catch the rest of the sketches in the morning. And that doesn't happen too often, but putting Weekend Update where it is, if it was any earlier, people tune out after it's done. If it's any later, no one's going to stay up for it because this airs at 1130 on the East Coast. Like this, you're getting towards, it's almost one o'clock by the time you're going to bed. It's one. That's why they call it the 10 to one, Gilda. (laughs) Yeah, so putting it in the middle is just, it's just smart production. It keeps me going. Yeah. And in terms of it being like a university, there's a siege of putting the show up each week. And that ultimately meant you're eating and drinking and in some cases sleeping with these people, the same group of people and going to the bathroom with them and seeing them at their best and their worst. And so ultimately it is very collegiate. I guess that's the best word. It's a lot like freshman year rooming experiences where you don't necessarily get to pick your roommates, but you ultimately have to try and get along. And then you think back and go, well, there were some bad times, but there were some really good parties too. And it's again, yeah, it's, it's a college atmosphere. In terms of problematic hosts, we have Steven Seagal, who I believe there's a behind the bastards on him. That's how bad he is. He's an oh, actor. Shit. He is an actor and there is a behind the bastards on him. For what? Um, I'm pretty sure being friends with Vladimir Putin and like raping 12 year old Ukrainian girls. Like, yeah. Oh God. Yeah. James Andrew Miller and Tom Shales, who are the editors of this book. Uh, On Saturday Night Live, guest and host are one and the same. Hundreds of celebrities, not all of them from show business, some more notorious than famous, have filled the double role. Some ingratiated themselves with the SNL regulars and vice versa, while others proved uncomfortable, antagonistic, and and even in one or two cases, sexually predatory. Followed immediately by Tim Meadows saying, the biggest problem with Steven Seagal was that he would complain about the jokes he didn't get. So you can't explain something to somebody in German if they don't speak German. He just wasn't funny. He was very critical of the cast and the writing staff. David Spade says he didn't want to go along with what the plan was that week. And as a result, I think that was the first week I heard about replacing the host and just doing a cast show, which holy shit, like... I, there, have been some, there have been some terrible SNL hosts that I have seen. And yeah. So Julia Sweeney says, when we pitched our ideas for Seagal at our Monday meeting, meeting, he gave us some of his own sketch ideas. And some of his sketch ideas were so heinous, but so hilariously awful. It was like we were on candid camera. This is touchy. And you might want to skip forward like 30 seconds. It, trigger warning sexual assault 
He had this idea that he's a therapist and he wanted Victoria Jackson to be his patient who'd just been raped. And the therapist says, you have to come to me twice a week for like three years because he said, that's how therapists fucking are. They're just trying to get your money. And then he says the psychiatrist tries to have sex with her. Not funny at fucking all. (laughs) No, not funny at all. Again, kind of like the Chevy Chase thing, but worse, how was he not just escorted off of the premises immediately? Like if someone made that comment in my work setting, it'd be like, okay, I'm done here and I am not coming back until that person's gone. That's so fucked up. Like, what do you think this is? Um, But also, (laughs) as I was just smoking that, I thought, oh my God, a hostless episode of SNL over fucking Tom Hanks' dead body. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my god. No shit. Oh, fuck, I needed that laugh. So, Steven Seagal, he's terrible. And what struck me from this anecdote from Julia Sweeney is she says that he came in with his own sketch ideas and some of his sketch ideas were so heinous And the one that she tells is still really fucking bad. And that was like the best one she could tell. So what the fuck were his other sketch suggestions? Oh, God. Right, like like that was the book appropriate anecdote. And that was terrible. That was fucking awful. Yeah, Dana Carvey says Keith Richards he remembers as a host there was a horse backstage that week and I was in my dressing area and I saw Keith Richards go up and hold the horse's face in his hands and go you're a fine horse aren't you I'll never forget that working with the athletes was great like playing catch with Joe Montana because I had a church chat where he threw a football to me playing catch and running patterns with Joe Montana with Wayne Gretzky we did a Wayne's World thing I had never been on skates or played Mm -hmm. hockey so Wayne Gretzky kneeled down and put on my shin guards Wayne Gretzky showed me how to hold a hockey stick like that is insane Wayne Gretzky he's the greatest hockey player that ever lived and he's over here showing Dana Carvey how to hold a hockey stick at the ice of the ice rink at Rockefeller Center like how do you not just have chills for the rest of your life I have chills that was probably that happened before I was born (laughs) something I also love about Saturday Night Live is the music as I've stated before I'm an absolute classic rock nut and Kevin Nealon on page 402 says, music-wise, it was a dream come true because I grew up with the Beatles and James Taylor and Paul Simon, and these are people who came through a lot. You know, you're sitting next to Paul McCartney as he's playing Hey Jude during rehearsal. Mick Jagger came on the show. Eddie, J- Eddie Vedder from Pearl Jam, he's doing three songs and he's not sure which three to do. So he's asking us during, during rehearsal, which do you think I should do? That's why I loved the show. And the only reason I stayed so long is because I loved doing it. I loved living in New York City and I love being able to work with all of these talented people who came through every week. A lot of people just wanted to use the show as a stepping stone to get out and move on. But I just loved being there. And that makes me so happy because he was just like happy to meet people and just be kind of in the background and do whatever was needed just to be near the show. And yeah, it's sweet. Honestly, if I were like, that's what I would do. It's just, you know, I, I don't need to be, I don't need to be Eddie Murphy. I don't need to be Kristen Wiig. I, I'd be happy mm-hmm. in the background. And Kevin Nealon, for those of you who don't know, eh, this might help you. He's dug on weeds. During this time, 1990 to 1995, was also the first appearance or the creation of the Five Timers Club in terms of hosting. And it started out kind of as a joke. And 
it turned into something that is still uh, okay, so Tom Hanks, I found I found the quote. I forgot to write the quote down on the iPad. Um, on page 404, Tom Hanks says about the Five Timers Club, it's still one of his favorite sketches. By that time, I had figured out the secret of being the host of the show is to concern yourself only with the monologue. Because if you have a good monologue, everybody thinks the entire show was great. So by the fifth time, I was pushing for something slam dunk. We must have a magnificent monologue. And I think Lauren said, well, why don't we do something like get you to join a secret club? And that was that. And so now... You have people like John Goodman and Justin Timberlake and people that have hosted the show again and again and again. I think Scarlett Johansson is the most recent inductee because she's actually a fucking phenomenal Saturday Night Live host. She will do anything and she is hilarious. I get why she and Joe start together. I only get it when she hosts. (laughs) (laughs) And then after that, I'm like, what? (laughs) Right. After that, I'm like, what? And then I'm like, oh, right. She's really fucking funny. It's normally a pretty good show and because the people have done it before they're comfortable and they're really comfortable comfortable with pushing boundaries it's almost guaranteed a bigger audience during a five-timer show or a, yeah during a five-timers club show and it's an event that if you host five times you're probably a pretty good host Saturday on Saturday Night Live so you're, it's probably going to be worth seeing and you never know who's going to show up some of the reused sketches uh, were a little problematic. Um, Tom Hanks talks about how there have been times where you hear something at read through. And, oh, Tom Hanks on 405 to 406. I think you figure out after a while that there are some sketches out there that are floating around and they have yet to land on a show and they keep bringing them back. You realize there's a reason these sketches are still just floating around and haven't landed on the show. There's been times we've been at the read-through and you can tell by everybody's groans that you're reading for the fourth time some sketch that someone thinks is great, hilarious, and they're submitting again, hoping that the host will click or something like that. I know there was one sketch we'd actually put on its feet. I can't remember what the show was, but it was called The Penis Song. It was all about us singing this song called Penis, 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 Penis all day long penis 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 song and it went on and on and on and it got cut and so I thought well that'll never be seen again but then it showed up about three shows later somebody else was hosting and so someone else got to sing the penis song on live tv god bless him <laughs> so, okay a I really loved reading that because in that or I loved reading that bit in Tom Hanks's voice because I just heard it in his voice but I also really like that he kind of showed his hand there where he says, but then it showed up three shows later. Somebody else was hosting. Homeboy watches Saturday Night Live every week. If he's watching three weeks later, Tom Hanks is an SNL fanboy. Oh yeah, you could tell just from oh. the way he talks about it. Dana Carvey says, by 93, I had done seven years. George Bush had run its course. Wayne's World, Church Lady had all been done. I thought I had done as much as I can do. My younger friends who were right behind me were David Spade, Chris Farley, and Adam Sandler. They were bursting with energy. They'd been on the junior varsity two or three years. It seemed like a natural time for them to take over. Dennis Miller had left. John Lovitz had left. Um, And so, yeah, seven years used to kind of be the norm-ish for staying on the show. And Fred Armisen stayed for, I think, 11 or 12. And Keenan Thompson, I think, is in his 16th or 17th year. And they've thrown that out the window. And honestly, the day that Keenan Thompson leaves SNL will be a very sad day for me because I have never known Saturday Night Live without him. He's the one fucking constant. Whoa, me too, though. (laughs) Yeah. Also, on page 406, didn't love the idea of a sketch called Jew, Not a Jew. Yeah, like literally, it was where Al Franken. Wait, and someone... who was the one who, who uh, pitched that? Does 
Uh, well, Tom Hanks talks about it on 406. He says, one of the earliest times they did the show, when NBC still had standards and practices, we read a hilarious sketch eh, called Jew, Not a Jew, <laughs> which was a game show in which you try to figure out who's Jewish and who's not. Yeah, that doesn't sound fucking funny. That sounds terrible, Tom Hanks. Tom Hanks. Go sit in the corner and think about what you just said. I wish I didn't that <laughs> yeah and so standards and practices wouldn't let it on the first time but when i did the show i don't know the fourth fifth or sixth time by that time there was no standards and practices and so we were trying to figure out something to do then l franken said well how about jew not a jew i said you guys haven't done that yet and so we pulled out jew not a jew and it killed it was hilarious i'm sorry I, that doesn't fucking sound funny no like the only people that i think could do that and pull that off would be jewish people and i don't yeah i no 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 don't if larry david wants to do it larry david can do it but But, like larry david is the only person i would allow to play that game he's the only one that would make it not problematic i wouldn't even let jerry seinfeld play that game jerry seinfeld would turn it into something gross and icky and problematic as fuck he is gross and icky. Have you ever seen the video where he's trying to convince John Mulaney that John Mulaney's wife doesn't know anything about interior designing? And John Mulaney's like, no, she is better at this than I am. And Jerry Seinfeld's like, no, no, she just has you convinced that she's better at this than, than you are. Like, we are better at this, not them. And John Mulaney's like, my wife is an interior designer. Like, she's literally better at this than I am. And Jerry Seinfeld's like, yeah, but that's, I mean, that's not like a real job, blah, blah, blah. And John Mulaney's like, she went to school. She has a degree. Like, yeah, no, he's fucking icky. He's gross. And you can see John Mulaney's face. You can see on his face. He's just like, I'm what? You're trying to gaslight me about my wife? And it was like, you could see that he was trying to turn John Mulaney against his wife and John Mulaney could see it. And like, you see it on his face in real time. I'll say it's so it's I fascinating. See this. Yeah. Oh my god. Oh. So yeah. Fuck. Ew. Gross. Uh huh. So yeah. Al Franken lost the update anchor position to Norm McDonald, and that Al Franken at that point left. And I get it. Uh, Don Olmeyer. Don Olmeyer felt that Al was too associated with the old show, and Al Franken had always, always, always wanted the update anchor slot. And so he says that in, uh, he and Norm MacDonald both did a test, a sort of a screen test, and it got sent out to Olmeyer. And this is something I'd always wanted. So Lorne and Jim take me out to dinner to give me the bad news, right? And I know what the dinner's about and neither of them can get up the courage to tell me. So we're eating dinner. We're talking about everything else. We go through the appetizer, the entree. It's a nice dinner at a nice Italian restaurant, someplace downtown. Finally, we get to dessert and coffee and we're having our coffee. And I'm like, guys, what's going on with the update thing? It's Olmeyer. It's Olmeyer. And I go, well, okay, but I'm heartbroken. And now I know I'm leaving the show. It's this big blow to me. And then the check comes and neither Lorne nor Jim is breath or credit cards so i have to pay for the dinner i got reimbursed it has a happy ending it's like dude like how do you bring a how do you bring a guy out to dinner to tell him that he didn't get his dream job and then oh fuck i left my wallet somewhere back at the office or at home you're gonna have to pay for dinner tonight sorry you just got canned so incredibly fucked up (laughs) And I mean, obviously, I mean, it says, I, I, I don't think it was on purpose, but still. There was a shift in update on page 411. Norm MacDonald, Norm MacDonald took over and 
most of James Downey, who ran Weekend Update at that point, most of his friends liked the Norm Macdonald update. They thought it was better than previous incarnations, and they liked the way we did it. Deadpan, very straight, no frills. The jokes were smart. They'd say they'd, it was the reason they watched the show or the best thing in the show. And this was very controversial because Don Olmeyer did not like Lord, uh, Norm Macdonald. And Lauren's, so that is happening at this time. And then on, fif- on page 415... Lorne uh, has a quote about the schedule. Lorne says, my bet is that Johnny and Ed don't hang together so much now. I I think they were both alive when he said this. They're both long dead now. Um, Friendship really needs distance and space. Not that we're overcrowding like rats, but the schedule is built so that after three shows in a row, when people are really getting on each other's nerves, there's a hiatus and you get some distance on it. You appreciate what a good place it is to work. So we're in the middle of an unprecedented five-show run of Saturday Night Live. This is, in two days, is going to be week three of week five of, in a five-show run. And please don't break Pete Davidson. Please. Um, so yeah, the show Saturday Night Live towards 95, it got toxic. The executives were emboldened by Friends success and wanted to recast the show with people that were pretty, like the people on Friends. And David Spade. Thank you. So yeah, David Spade and Phil Hartman left bad blood when they left the show. And, um, something like that always happens when you leave, people leave the show and they do interviews and something is taken out of context and yeah it that never goes well um on 417 um something that is mentioned is uh <laughs> david letterman's monkey cam and al franken remembers getting a call from someone at the philadelphia inquirer saying why doesn't the show take chances and i said well, we don't take chances i think we do and she said i'm talking about risky stuff like you know how letterman does the monkey cam now that's risky and i go okay that's not risky it's just a great idea it's not a risky idea you put a camera on a monkey's head and the monkey runs around the studio it's great but you don't know what the word risky means lady and i remember those sketches i remember those <laughs> bits on david letterman the monkey cam and i freaking loved them so yeah that was what I had to um, say about that. And then one of the biggest battles that Lauren faced towards the end of this time period, uh, 90 to 95, in the 94, 95 period, James Downey says, one of the network's ideas that they were very serious about was why does it have to be live? And why do you need a guest host when it's the cast that brings people back each week? And they bitched about the live element, about how the live element made it much more expensive and complicated and how you could shoot all your Jeopardy sketches in one afternoon. Why does it need to be live? It's the magic, you nitwits. No one wants to watch a pre-taped sketch comedy show. That's why none of them are on TV. That's why they're not yeah so yeah i mean we were really just talking about it earlier in this episode right it's it has to be yeah yeah, fine it might it might cost you less money to shoot everything in one afternoon but what's special about knowing what you're watching was taped three months ago nothing (laughs) so yeah at that point uh don olmeyer gave Lorne Michaels an ultimatum. And he says the ultimatum is a difficult word, that he never gave Lorne an ultimatum. He says, but what I basically said to him is, the show has to get better. That, that's an ultimatum. If, you're, if it's the show has to get better, you're going to get fired, you're going to lose your job. That's an ultimatum. So yeah, unfortunately, par- as part of that ultimatum, Adam Sandler and Chris Farley were cut from the cast. Apparently Tim Meadows was ordered to be fired as well, but Lorne saved him, which I'm cool with. I like Tim Meadows. Me too. So yeah, 
Uh, that's it for part five. Thank you for listening to all of this. This was the most drama-filled slash longest section of notes I had. And from here on out, the chapters are only like 80 to 90 pages long. So you're welcome. Um, <laughs> uh, so yeah, you can find us wherever you get your podcasts. We are on all major podcast platforms. We are um, on social media at Set Night High Pod. On Twitter, that's going to be spelled N-I-T-E because of character limit. We're on Reddit, Facebook, Instagram. Um, we also have an email. Satnighthypod at gmail.com. <laughs> you can send us weed-related stories, comments, questions, concerns. Also, if you'd like to... Um, We'd really appreciate it if you would like, subscribe, rate, review. Uh, it really helps us out. And then you get notified when there's more episodes of us. <laughs> For yes. your ear holes. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, I think that's it. Yeah. That's it for yeah. me. I'm Gilda. And I'm Steph. Happy highs. Happy highs.